0: Father in heaven, we count it such a great privilege to come into thy house. And, and Lord, we're, we're amazed by the beauty that we see and have been able to experience the, the last few days as we would just walk outside and see the glory of the creation that you've blessed us with. And, and Father, to think that you've seen fit to bless us even that much more through your word and through the studying of it and the applying of its truths to our lives. And so, Father, we would pray that in this day that as we would look into your word and as we would look to your spirit to give us direction and instruction from it, that our hearts and our minds could be clear to the distractions that might otherwise be there, Lord. They're different for each of us and they're um, equal in weight for each, even though maybe different in application. And, and Father, we pray that we could be focused upon the message that you'd have for us and that we could apply it to our lives in a way that it would be needful for our walk tomorrow. Lord, be with those who can't be with us in this day. For our loved ones who are under the weather or, or, or weak or feeble, Lord, we're, we're mindful of them and, and of the needs that they have and pray that we could um, impart a blessing to them as we know that they are a blessing to us and that thy spirit would be with them in this day. Lord, again, now as we would open your word, we'll ask thy blessing on it and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, ask you to turn with me to Colossians chapter four, last chapter of Colossians. As we'll read, um, we'll read the whole chapter. Uh, you might recall uh, a couple weeks ago we were we read in chapter three, but then also included some uh, some verses at the beginning of chapter four. I'll reread those, but the the crux of what I've kind of been led to this morning is to look at the people that are mentioned here at the, the back end of the book of Colossians. Um, I think a lot of times in Scripture when we're reading, we have these kind of clunky names that we, we read and we stumble over them and there's the salutation to this guy and uh, greet that person whose church is in the house. And uh, even in the beginning of the New Testament where we have the lineages of Mary and Joseph, we stumble over all of these um, old-school names and don't really pay attention to it. And admittedly, I don't. Um, the Old Testament's full of a whole bunch of those spots where I remember reading when I set aside to read through the Bible, those were the ones that I really got tired of because it's, and so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and I, I kind of don't pay attention to them. Well, there's some very interesting things um, that I I was drawn to here at the end of Colossians and hope that we can look at them uh, in the context of who these people were and what, what Paul's inclusion of them in, in various writings that he has could, could talk to us about. So, with, with that as a backdrop, let's read uh, chapter 4 of Colossians. It says, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, withal praying also for us, that God would be open unto us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make in manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. All my state shall Tychicus deliver, declare unto you who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister son to Barnabas, touching whom ye received commandments, If he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and for them of Laodicea and them of Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are at Laodicea and Nymphis, and the church which is in his house. And when this apostle be read, when this epistle is read, you among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and say to Archippus. Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation, by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. Written from Paul to the Colossians by Tychicus and Onesimus. So we have the close of, of another letter of the Apostle Paul. Like I said, the first few verses of this we talked about last week, or a couple weeks ago, and so we won't get into that. But what struck me was the way that Paul references some of these folks here, and if you're familiar with the book to Philemon or the letter to Philemon, a lot of these same characters are are written in there. We know that the letter to Philemon is actually a plea um, to Philemon for the freedom of Onesimus, who was the slave, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what struck me was um, just, I wanted to go through a, a few of these folks just to, to talk about who they were and and see what this relationship with Paul—I don't even know how to say it correctly—maybe to see Paul's perspective on his relationship with these individuals. Um, I think when we we started in Colossians, we talked about how this was a church that Paul never visited. These were folks that had not known or had known of him, but not seen him. And he says earlier in the chapter how. He, his heart breaks for those and longs for those who have not seen his face. But he knows about these churches. He had received a report. He'd received a, um, an update or a status on them from Epaphras. This Epaphras who's written in, in verse 12 says that he's one of you. He sends a salutation back to the churches. Um, Paul has immense respect and appreciation for, for Epaphras. And just the way that he relays back to the church how they should see him. For I bear him record that he hath great zeal for you and for them of Laodicea. So Epaphras is here with Paul in Rome in his imprisonment in Rome. But yet Paul sees fit to send Tychicus and Onesimus as the ministers or the messengers that would go back to the churches in in Colossae and in that region and into Laodicea. And he says that Tychicus is going to declare unto you all of that, you know, here's the letter, and he's going to read it to you. But beyond that, there's more that, that's going to be shared. Just in the same way that when we get a, maybe just call it an elder report. I don't want to, those two things, they're not parallel. But since we don't really have a good um, comparison on our, in our circles, just let me use it that way. Is there's a letter that's going to be read by the brothers that were at a meeting. And they're going to share the letter. But there's more to the letter than just the words on the page. Right? There's an explanation of the things that went on and wanting to describe, you know, when brother so-and-so said this, here's how they were impassioned about it. When Paul was writing this thing and when, he, when Paul said, you know, my heart longs for you, I, my heart breaks for you, that's hard to put on paper. You know, some folks are real descriptive in their writing and others are very methodical. The, the reason to send somebody as the messenger is to be able to re to add those things which would otherwise fall between the lines. And so Tychicus, not known to the the churches there, has this entrance written about him. That, you know, he's going to be the messenger. He's a faithful minister and a fellow servant of the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for that same purpose, to be a faithful minister unto the Lord, that he may know your estate and comfort your hearts. And I'm also sending Onesimus. With Tychicus, Onesimus is coming, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, that ye, that ye shall make known unto you all the things which are done here. Think about who Onesimus is. We know, I mean, if you just flip to Philemon, we have this book, that, this letter that is written. Philemon being the master who owns this slave, this servant, uh, Onesimus. Onesimus has fled away, he's run away, and in the meantime, has become a brother in the Lord. And Paul says, I'm sending Onesimus back, I want you to free him. Whatever he owes, I will pay it. But trying to explain the, the conversion experience that Onesimus has had. The redemptive work that's been done and how profitable he is in the Lord and for the work that Paul is doing. And so we can see Paul's Paul's taking this servant man, this slave, and, and giving him the position of, of a messenger of the church to, to take this letter and to... This wouldn't have been a, you know, they show up on a Sunday morning, they read the letter, and then they go on their way. This was to go and to minister in those churches. And it wasn't just one. It was to all of the churches scattered around in Asia there that they would go and they would share this letter and read the letter from the Laodiceans. And just for the record, I'm, we're not going to get into, where's that letter? Oh, is that one of the other letters? We, well, how come it's not recorded? It doesn't matter. We don't need that today. But I, I'm just, I was moved by the fact that God saw fit to take the, redemptive, the redemption story of Onesimus, and use it in a way where Paul can call him a faithful and beloved brother, and not just as one that would sit there at his side and be his scribe to write out these letters. But you know what? I wrote out the letter. I heard Paul write all these words, or speak these words, dictate these words to me, and now I'm here to share these things with you, Colossae, Laodicea. Here's what Paul meant here's how his house arrest is going. Here's how feeble he is. Here's how bad his eyesight is at this point. To be able to describe the man, to describe the situation, to describe the passion with which he wrote of this concern that he has of the earthly influences that are upon them. The next person we we read about, um, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. We don't know much about Aristarchus. We just know that he's also there in the letter to Philemon. Again, his fellow servant, fellow prisoner. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you received commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. I'll stop for a second on, on Marcus. So this is John Mark. And as I was sitting at the table last night, I was kind of running this relationship um, piece through my, through my mind, and I'm kind of like talking it through with Ashley, and it's a bit of word salad, meaning it gets so convoluted of all the different places where John Mark comes up, but who is John Mark? Well, we know it says it's sister-son to Barnabas, which is a better way of saying Barnabas' nephew. This is Barnabas's nephew that, if you flip back into Acts, we remember this is the, the man, the young man, that comes with Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey. And at some point, for whatever reason, be it young man homesickness or whatever, wants to go, wants to go back to Barnabas' sister, he abandons them and goes back home. We fast forward a number of years and Paul and Barnabas are about to be sent out again and want to take helpers with them. And Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. And Paul says, I'm not taking John Mark. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, shame on you. Or whatever that is. You know how it goes. You know what I mean. I always do that backwards, so just reverse it. And it says that this the dissension was so strong. Like, we always like to talk about that as one of the examples of, like, fights in the church, right? Paul and Barnabas fight so bad that they decide, okay, no, no, we can't even work this out. Barnabas, you take your nephew, Paul takes Silas, and we go our separate ways. And so we kind of leave that, and I know I've Dad's... Had messages before about this that you know we can fast forward later to a, in Second Timothy. Um, yeah, Second Timothy, we have this redemption story—not redemption story, but the restoration story. Thank you. The happy ending story of of John Mark is Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with me, with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. One of Paul's last letters, 2 Timothy, he says to Timothy, bring Mark with me because he's profitable for me in the ministry. This beautiful story that, you know what, Mark grew up at some point and, and everything worked out well. So the interesting part to me is that that's one piece of it. But yet already in the book of Colossians, we have Paul talking about how Mark is there with him, sends a salutation, and says, it also adds that touching whom he had received, Mark had written commandments, had given direction, given, given instruction in whatever way, to the churches. And Paul tells them, listen, be obedient to those things. The part that I didn't put together before, I mean, it's, it's one of those things you know, but you don't, quite, um, you don't quite line up, is this is the same Mark, the same John Mark, that writes the Gospels, the Gospel of Mark. And then, when we look at that and imagine that when, and I was in Mark a couple months back and, and reading some of the thoughts on, on the development of that and, and seeing that Mark's gospel seems to be highly influenced or heavily influenced by Peter and, and the way that Peter would have described things. And so, you have these church fathers, at one point, Peter or Paul has nothing to do with John Mark, doesn't want anything to do with him. And at the end, we have the gospel of Mark being one influenced by one of the other fathers of faith in Peter, and working its way all the way back around, this is one that Barnabas saw potential in and didn't give up on. Barnabas saw potential in the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. He's the one that went to the council in Jerusalem and, and vouched for Paul and said we should take this man and we should, he, we should foster a relationship with him. And we watch Paul work his whole arc as a church father. And it, it appears almost that, once again, here's Barnabas seeing potential in one, not being discouraged by the fact that there was a bump in the road, and invests and invests and invests to the fact we're well, not just because he's his nephew. I'm sure there was familial love there, but there was a recognition of the spirits working in John's life, and that even though things looked bumpy at times, that there was going to be value that could be seen in him. And invest, when the investment was made, look at the blessing that could come from it. a couple of these i don't have a whole lot for you on but and jesus which is justice one of the circumcision these are only my fellow workers unto the kingdom of god which have been a comfort unto me apaphras who is one of you we talked about that a servant of christ saluteth you always laboring fervently for you in prayers that ye may be that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of god for i bear him record that he hath great zeal for you i'm just going to keep reading For them of Laodicea and them in Hierapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. There's got to be a downside to this passage, and we're going to talk about it now. Who is Demas? Now, this isn't really fair. If you, years ago, many, many years ago, when we still got the hard copy of the messenger delivered at home growing up, they used to uh, record sermons in there or dictate sermons and include them. And I remember there was a sermon that was dictated one time or transcribed, not dictated, transcribed that was about Demas. This is not a person that's mentioned many different places in Scripture, but we have him here. We have him in the book of Philemon and we have him in 2 Timothy. And in Philemon and Colossians, we have him included as one of the fellow ministers, one of the fellow brothers, the servants that were there with Paul in prison, ministering to him, serving him, encouraging him. We don't hear anything negative about him, but that he was there. And by the fact that he's called out as one of those that would send a salutation, we imagine that he was in good state with Paul at this particular point. But if you flip to... You don't have to. I'll just read it. 2 Timothy 4. One verse... Prior to the piece discussing John Mark, in verse 10, it says, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. We have a tragic story. We have somebody that's included. As a brother in Christ, that is included as a servant of Paul, that is included along the lines of all these others that he has placed praise on. And then we have an explanation from a few years later, it's not a massive amount of time, that he has forsaken me. And in forsaking Paul, we can only assume, by virtue of how he forsook him, having loved this present world, that he forsook his faith or that he had walked away or it wasn't as important to him as it should have been at that time and he was a place he was in a place separated from the lord and that just that's, that's just tragic to me and it strikes me and it, and it's it's one that i appreciate so much that it's included in scripture because it also shows the honesty of the way that the the gospels and the letters the epistles were written is that there's nothing that's negated. You know, if, if this was not a true story, if this ne- was not true accounts, or if it was propaganda, then those kind of pieces would be yanked out of there. How easy would it be to, neg- to neglect or to negate or to blot out a story of Demas? It wouldn't have to be there. But it's there for a reason, and I think for us to recognize the peril in which we can place ourselves if we're not careful about the walk that we have here below, and I know this kind of parallels what I was sharing the other day about this idea of um, being careful about our flight and how we, how we take control of our, our airplane of faith. And I promise I'm not going to go down that road because my kids already tell me that I only talk about um, history, space, and airplanes. The funny part was at one point they said, Um, I don't remember which one it was that said the the themes that the ministers preach about was dad preaches about history and space stuff. Papa preaches about feelings and Uncle Scott preached about uh, food. That's what they were taking away. But I was actually hoping this would have been an afternoon service at some point because what I wanted to share, uh, I I, I actually had to ask my resident history buff to help me on the ride in this morning, because there's another story that parallels Demas so well, and I didn't realize it did until we took a, a little family day trip last week. Um, if I told you, th- th- this is a true story, and I'm not going to reveal who it is until the end. Ethan already knows who it is, and most of you will probably put it together before I get to the end. But Revolutionary War, 1775. Which, yes, I know that means that the war hasn't started yet. But 1775, there's a merchant captain uh, in the Northeast, primarily off the coast in in the Atlantic Ocean, but also up and down Lake Champlain. Merchant captain who becomes a captain in the Continental Army. He is um, highly impactful, critical to victories at Fort Ticonderoga, at the stand at Fort Stanwix, uh, at Velker Island, all of these uh, these battles that took place, and it's pretty fascinating. We've lived here; I've lived here my entire life. And as I've driven through Rome, I've passed Fort Stanwix and never had an idea any idea what was the deal with that. I've driven along the Mohawk River and never paid much attention. I've been up and down the Hudson and didn't pay much attention. Now I have a son who's into this, and now it's really coming to life for me. But I don't think I ever realized that the Hudson River going north and south was critical to the Revolutionary War in the simple fact that the Canadians and the British were coming from Canada and trying to uh, get to New York and to besiege New York. And New York was being attacked from New York City, from the south and then from from the river coming from the north. And so Fort Ticonderoga there along Lake Champlain, these other battles along Lake Champlain were, were critical in how, was the, how were the colonies going to perform. And so it all came to a head in Saratoga, not Saratoga Springs, but Saratoga, uh, along the Hudson River. And this captain, with others around him, was kind of in conflict with some of the other captains who were more conservative, didn't want to really get into the mess, were trying to hold off the British as they came from the, south, or came from the north heading south and now I'm forgetting what the British captain's name What was the British general? Burgoyne. Is leading thousands of men down Lake Champlain into the Hudson coming south. And at a battle in Saratoga, this captain, or captain general, whatever his rank was at that point, sorry I'm not remembering, uh, is seeing his troops discouraged, is seeing them near defeat, seeing them in a tough spot, sends rides out. This wasn't the way the battles happened back then, right? The generals and everybody stood in the back or sat in the back on their horses. In this case, already having been injured in previous battles, rides out into the middle to rally the troops so that they could see that they could pursue the British here. And he's shot. He's shot through the leg. It kills his horse, destroys his leg. But the encouragement that he gives his troops is enough for the Continental Army to have its first victory in the war. I didn't know that. First time the British lost was at Saratoga. And you can walk, and I know I talked about Valley Forge a couple months ago. It's not as nice a national park as Valley Forge, but they're fixing it, so hopefully it will be soon. But you can stand in these same places. You can see the river. You can see where they came down the river. You can see where they walked along the path to Albany. And you can see where this stand took place. And here's where this general, captain, whatever, this military leader goes and puts himself in harm's way and brings about this victory for the Continental Army. His leg is so messed up that when it's healed, it's three inches shorter, two or three inches shorter, two inches, excuse me two inches shorter than it was before. And so now you've got this man that, just imagine, is, is walking around with a limp, but he's a hero. He's an absolute American hero. He's given, he's held in such high esteem by General Washington that he's given um, authority over, or uh, I don't remember, what, what's the right word? Command. He's given command over West Point. West Point was a fort before it was the Army um, college, or whatever it's called now. But you know what? He butted heads with his other captains. He was always looking for a little bit more money from the Continental Army, and they didn't have a lot. Washington's letters talk about how they didn't have enough food, and they didn't have enough clothes, and we, we've read about all of those different things. And this guy was frustrated because he wanted to have a higher command, and though George Washington really held him in high esteem, the Continental Army, or Congress didn't. And when, they wrote, when he wrote for additional commands, they, they said no. And so he was frustrated and st- started to be um, influenced by loyalists. Goes and marries a loyalist woman named Peggy Shippen. And apparently she had a pretty high expectation on lifestyle, and so he starts to try to fulfill that lifestyle for her, has to borrow money from the treasury to fulfill that lifestyle. And so he's more and more entwined with loyalist sympathizers, and, and in particular a British major who's a friend of his wife, John Andre, who coincidentally through this friendship, and during the time of this friendship, John Andre becomes head of the British espionage and slowly but surely works over this American war hero to the point where they come up with an agreement that for 20,000 pounds, the fort at West Point would be turned over to the British. And by now, you all know who this guy is. At some point, the plot's uncovered. The Patriots find John Andre with the papers that describe all these things. Andre is captured. The captain Former American captain um, gets away and escapes and, and runs off to Canada, eventually becomes a, a British colonel, I think. And that's why when we talk about like betrayal, we, use, we, we call somebody a Benedict Arnold. I'm just going to say this. I grew up in the state of New York. I had an entire year of New York history, early American history, and I had no idea that Benedict Arnold actually had a good origin story. I knew Benedict Arnold was a traitor. I had no idea that there was a story before that talked about a man that was instrumental, that was integral in the victory and in the start of victory in the new world. Not the new world, that's the colonies. When you go to Saratoga now, there is a, it's under renovation right now, so we couldn't see it, but we've watched enough videos to see it. There are no monuments, no memorials, no statues with Benedict Arnold's name on them. There's one that overlooks the, the field where he rode out uh, for the end that victorious battle. There's one spot where there is a boot, a stone boot and it doesn't say anything on it. It's just a stone boot. And then if you turn around, somewhere in the background, there's one of those little plaques that describes what the stone boot is. More in-your-face-ish, in Schuylerville, which is actually what Saratoga was called um, before, I don't know when it changed, but in any case, at the top of the hill in Schuylerville, there's an obelisk. It's the second tallest obelisk in the country next to the Washington Monument. But if you look at this thing, it looks like the Washington Monument. It's a little shorter. And since it's four-sided, there are four openings for statues to be placed. Ethan, I'm going to screw it up so I won't offer it up. But three of those are full. Three of those have big statues, big monuments in there for for one was the other general who gets credit, most of the credit for the victory at Saratoga. Another one for a militiaman or one, a guy that climbed up in the tree and was, talk to Ethan later, he can explain it to you. But there's three of them. And then there's one that is empty. It looks like a tomb. It looks like a tomb 12 feet up in the air, 15 feet up in the air, in the same way that all the other ones look like a Catholic cathedral with, you know, here's Mark and Peter and Paul. It, it, then there's one that's missing. And symbolically, it's missing because they wanted to acknowledge the place of Benedict Arnold, but did not want to pay him any honor because of the betrayal that he brought upon the country. So is Benedict Arnold uh, Demas? uh, Are these comparables? Well, I was shocked. How better do you describe what happened to Benedict Arnold than he loved the present world? He got a burr under his saddle because he wasn't getting the recognition that he wanted or that he thought he was entitled to. He couldn't live up to the lavish lifestyle that he had been accustomed to. And so he started compromising in little ways and things that probably seemed subtle at the time. And since he was comfortable sitting in the fort, and because everything else around him seemed to be okay, he just was content walking down this compromising road. And at some point, it was too much to come back. At some point... The, the deed was done, and he had signed himself, himself over to the enemy. And we don't know the context of what happened with Demas. We don't know what the intrigue of this present world, but we know that when the Apostle Paul said, the only thing that the Apostle Paul really describes is, is to say, having loved this present world and is departed unto Thessalonica. I, don't, I didn't mean to end negatively. Unfortunately, he's the last one we talk about in the passage. But what struck me was, how? I, I don't want to end on it. How, how, how can our lives be modeled like Barnabas, the encourager that always sees potential in the Lord's servant? Things maybe get bumpy. I may not appreciate exactly how my nephew handled that particular situation, but I see the heart there. I see the commitment that he has, and I want to invest in that. I want to double down on that. I'll take, when, when he went out with Paul the first time, he put himself on the line, his reputation on the line, regardless of what Paul was going to say. He didn't know what Paul was going to say. He didn't know if Paul was going to be, uh, the father of faith. He didn't know that he was going to be the father of faith that he became. But he could, now in retrospect, hindsight 2020, we can see the blessing that was. We can see the wisdom that, that Barnabas had. And maybe it was because of that experience and that um, success that he said, you know, I see this in John Mark and, I, and I, want to, I want to forgive him for the abandonment that he brought upon us, that he, that he left us with. And I want to double down because I see what can happen here. If we look at John Mark, maybe that's the the window that we see our lives. That, you know, we've had experiences in our walk of faith that we're not proud of. And we've repented of them. But we've said to the Lord, here I am. Talk about level of commitment. I mean, it might not have been a good window for John at that one particular time. But you know what? I've been lonely, I've been homesick. I've not wanted to go different places. I might have run home at different times. I just didn't have the Apostle Paul and Barnabas fighting about it. And yet God is gracious and he gives us the grace to, to come back to him and to, to repent of that sinful spirit, that whatever it was, to repent of that failure in our lives so that with his empowering spirit in our hearts, And our obedience in our walk with him, that we can be put to use in a way, in a measure like Mark was. The question that we continually have to ask ourselves is in verse 17, is one of the pieces that I wanted to emphasize on this. In verse 17, it says, And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. First, just take that for yourself. Are we taking heed to the ministry that we have received in the Lord that we fulfill it? I don't like the, like, it doesn't matter whether I like it or not. I wish there was a different word than ministry put here. If we said calling, take heed to the calling that you've received in the Lord that you fulfill it. If we recognize for each of our lives, the calling that we had as single is different sometimes than the calling that we have as, as married folks and as parents and then, as grandparents, and then as great grandparents, as employees, as employers, as retired, as teachers, as whatever. Our callings may be different at different times, but the question is am I, is it clear to me from the Lord what my calling is, and then my taking heed to fulfill it? Because I think in Demas's case, he wasn't, clearly wasn't. And by not taking heed to what his calling or his ministry was, he was taking heed to many, many other things. And we know this world well enough that the other things that we can take heed to and take attention or give attention to are, will bombard us at every turn. And if we're not careful about putting those things to the side so that we can take heed, that we can take focus, that we can place emphasis on those things that are of our ministry, then we slowly but surely walk toward those things of this present world and forsaking the Lord for this present world. The second piece of that that I think is almost more important is that we recognize how this was written. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that thou fulfill it. This was a letter. This was a letter that was given to Onesimus and Tychicus to take to the church. And in the letter... Paul says, so they're reading. We're reading. We're listening. Antichicus and Onesimus say, say to Archippus, take heed of the ministry that you've been called and fulfill it. He's asking for the church to tell this brother or sister, take heed of the ministry that you've received of the Lord and fulfill it. Now, we can read that and say, well, let's, that's saying that the congregation should tell the minister, sure, yes. You should say to us, take heed of the ministry that you've received of the Lord, that you fulfill it. Make sure you fulfill it. I'm going to read between the lines and suggest that that also can happen side by side. That as we sit around the table at lunch, take heed of the ministry that you've received in the Lord, that you fulfill it. There, the hierarchy system that we have is, is fine in the sense that we, we, we share the word in this kind of a format. That's good. That's how we've been set up. That's how, we've been, that's how Scripture says we should set up. But if we neglect the accountability of one another together, then we're not, we will not be fulfilling this completely. And to my mind when I when I read of you know the blessing of these brothers being around Paul and I guarantee you there were sisters too that's just for sure. The blessing of these being around Paul to encourage him to be there to simply write the words sometimes to give him insight as to what's happening in the different churches is exactly that kind of relationship. If we is the kind of relationship that keeps accountability, that keeps accountability and recognizes those times when someone is being intrigued by the things of this present world and maybe has hasn't forsaken the Lord yet, but has been drawn away a bit and has been discouraged and, or has been intrigued by or, or whatever. But if we have an accountability one to another, if we have insight into each other's lives, if we have um, connection, We can share that accountability and we can share those words together and take heed one for another, not just individually, so that we're all fulfilling the ministry that we've received of the Lord. I'm so thankful that in the same passage, we've got Demas and John Mark. And like we say all the time, we're persuaded better things. I'm thankful for how few and far between the accounts that we can recall of situations like Demas, but recognize that we all at one point or another, probably have situations in our lives that were like John Mark. And if we can be humble enough to humble enough to acknowledge those things, to recognize them, to confess them, and to build upon them then we can have those accounts where Paul says, send him to me. Send me that one because he's profitable for me in the ministry. May the Lord bless these words.